Welcome to another episode of Teachers in White Coats, a podcast series produced by the Educational Technology Team at Stanford Medicine, where we sit down with doctors, faculty, and other health professionals to hear their stories on the innovative ways they've used education to help improve health outcomes. I'm your host, Irfan Majadam, Manager of Academic Tech and Innovation at Stanford Medicine. Today's episode will focus on teaching and learning in the middle of a global pandemic. My guest today is a familiar face around the halls of Stanford. Monica Bryant is the Administrative Director and Course Manager for Practice of Medicine here at the Med School. She has spent 16 years at Stanford, including a master's degree in East Asian Studies. She also has the bachelor's degree in English from Howard University and was a Fulbright Fellow in Japan. Welcome to the show, Monica. Thank you for having me. So we're both joining from our homes as the campus hasn't fully opened yet from the shelter in place. However, let's start with pre-pandemic times. Uh, Can you tell us what your role was in working with students and faculty prior to March of this year? Certainly. So my role in the course is sort of twofold. On one level, um, I'm in charge of coordinating the day-to-day logistics of the first year practice of medicine course. So things like making copies of documents and uploading or linking things to Canvas, sending out reminders and announcements to students and faculty, that sort of thing, keeping the course on track. On another level, I also work on major projects for the course. I do curriculum and assessment development. Uh, I do case authoring for both standardized patient cases that we use for clinical skills, as well as some of the case discussions that we do for some of our foundational topics like nutrition and our cultural diversity and inclusion sessions. I also do strategic planning and budget for the course, and I've been doing that for a number of years. My, I see my role as sort of trying to create a comprehensive and comprehensible uh, curriculum for the students to learn and for the faculty to teach. And so that's, that's what I tend to do in my role. And tell us a little bit about how you got involved in, in this role at Stanford. Sure. Um, when I did my master's at Stanford, I was actually a student worker for EdTech. Mary Ayers was my supervisor. And so I was very, very familiar with your group. Um, And I did a lot of work in transitioning the old, old curriculum to the old, new curriculum, um, now that we're in the discovery curriculum. Um, So I worked a lot with the faculty in, you know, scanning and digitizing a lot of their materials, and I got very familiar with the new curriculum structure. And so then when I finished my master's in 2004, this job had opened up, and I felt like I was relatively well positioned because I was familiar with the curriculum at the time um, and doing a lot of projects related to that. So I felt like I could transition to that pretty easily. And that's how I wound up in this position. And this position itself did actually evolve quite a bit over the years that I've been doing it. Okay, great. Thank you. Let's fast forward a little bit. Mm -hmm. So it's March 16th. We all receive a notification from the county and an email from Dean Miner regarding a mandatory shelter in place. So what was the first thing on your mind when you received that email? Well, so I think when we first started thinking about the shelter in place, you know, obviously we were a little panicked. There were 
other words that came to mind that would not be appropriate for this podcast. But we had sort of had like a cognitive head start around this at the beginning of March. So we were already putting into place a, a contingency plan in case we did need to do things remotely or in a hybrid way for the spring quarter. So I felt a little bit more prepared when that March 16th announcement came through, but um, there was contingency plans to the contingency plans that were occurring and information was changing day to day. So that was very challenging. (laughs) Can you describe those plans and how did your role change when we did move into the shelter in place? Sure. So um, one of the benefits of our curriculum is that we do a lot of classroom learning in the first two quarters, and then we spend a lot of time at the quote-unquote workplace application in the spring quarter. So uh, we had planned a lot of activities in the spring related to going into the hospital and shadowing and doing a lot of sort of um, application-based things in a clinical setting that we were not able to do, and we had to pivot quite abruptly from that. And so We just spent a lot of time going through the learning objectives and seeing if we could replicate and create some substitutions. But And ultimately, we were able to successfully transition like a high number of sessions into a virtual delivery. But we actually did have to defer a a number of sessions just because there was no optimal substitution for it. So for example, we have an introduction to geriatric session in the spring quarter that is the major component is a workplace visit to a skilled nursing facility, a SNF. Obviously, we couldn't do that, and there was no way to replicate it. And we also are unlikely to be able to do that in the near future. So we are still working on trying to figure out how to achieve that educational objective for the course. But in terms of the sort of day-to-day skill set, I would say, other than like a crash course in Zoom, that I am fully grateful for your... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> your, your assistance with, there wasn't quite as much change as I had thought there would be in terms of like what skills I had to build in order to transition this. Okay, great. So you mentioned both some of these smaller sessions as well as doing large class sessions on Zoom. So let's, let's focus with, with some of the large lectures that had to move over to Zoom. Both in your opinion and what you heard from the students and the faculty, how was the experience compared to the in-person lectures that they had prior to the shutdown? Yeah, so the large group sessions, actually, we were pleasantly surprised in both the first and second year that there seemed to be actually an increased amount of engagement from the students. We were able to tangibly, we were tangibly received more questions through the Zoom chat function or the Q&A than we would have gotten in a large group lecture hall with raised hands and things like that. So there seemed to be a little bit more engagement in that. And then the questions that were being asked were very nuanced and thoughtful and it seemed like the students were very engaged in the material and were following along quite well. This may be anecdotal, but why do you think the students were, were more engaged in, in this format? Well, I mean, there was probably the primary reason it was because there was a little bit more safety in sending a question out there. So people could send a question directly to the presenter or the moderator and not sort of, and be shielded from the class, their classmates around the question. And so I think that allowed a lot more safety to ask questions that probably students would have sat on and maybe asked after the fact or in a, in a different forum, or maybe wouldn't have asked at all. I also think that at least at the very beginning of spring quarter, I think students had significantly reduced activities that they were trying to manage um, because they weren't able to go into labs and other things. So I think there was 
more focused attention on the course, at least in the initial weeks. Did you see any challenges, particularly for those large sessions compared to in-person sessions? I mean, it's hard because you don't see anybody's face really, even if if students chose to put on their video, which they tended not to do for didactics, which I totally understand. You know, it's just you as I think as as teachers, the faculty and the staff tend to really try to respond and be responsive to how the students are taking in the information. And so that was just a kind of a hard thing. So you're kind of scanning the crowd and you're like, does everybody understand? And you pick up a lot of nonverbals in order to uh, figure out what to do next. And we, we just weren't able to do that. Great. Let's shift to the small group sessions and labs. How did you run those and how did you keep the students engaged? Well, so we did, we don't have labs for practice of medicine, but we do have small groups and they tended to be about equivalent to in the remote environment versus the in-person environment. Um, Our groups are pretty small. They were anywhere from four to nine students for the most part. And so then it was easy to keep people engaged in that way. You know, I think we were trying to build in appropriate breaks and there was a little bit of a, there was some technical um, uh, sort of thresholds we were trying to achieve at the beginning. But I think as everybody got a little bit more comfortable with the technology, you know, we were able to sort of establish our own best practices and the faculty were able to establish their own best practices for their teaching style. Uh, Did you or did you see some of the students experiencing what most of us have probably felt with Zoom exhaustion? Uh, Yes. Okay, any, uh, any strategies, you know, based on the, the few months of experience that you've had so far? Yeah, I mean, I think no matter what, after about two hours, you're going to see it no matter what you do up front. Um, I think what the faculty wound up doing a lot is they just really codified breaks. So instead of if we had been in person, the faculty would have asked you know, if, if people were willing to take a break at that point or if they wanted to go straight through. And I think near the end of the quarter, the faculty just made the call to just be like, we're going to have a break at this point and actually instructed students to turn off the, the video and walk away from the computer and just take that break. And I think that helped to the extent that it possibly could. And I also think the faculty, some of the faculty worked really hard to come up with different teaching modalities. So to keep the students engaged in that way, and that also helped to an extent. What are those teaching modalities that they used over Zoom? Um, so I think uh, there were faculty that got very facile with the, um, the breakout rooms and then using them more efficiently as the quarter went on. Um, I think some of the faculty did really well with giving the students activities to do. So going in to look something up and then coming back to the group. They, there was a lot of use of the whiteboard and diagramming and things like that. So I think that that was very effective as well. So what would you say is the most important tip that you can give to instructors who will be delivering courses remotely in this upcoming quarter? I think it's really important to make like what we would consider the implicit explicit. So I would say just be really upfront and comment directly on the abnormality of the situation at the start of the session. I would be really upfront about the steps that uh, the facilitator, the faculty will be taking to try to preserve the the learning environment as much as possible. And just being very clear about that and agenda setting at the top of the session, I would say do really deliberate intentional check-ins. I think just in general, we just really need to 
the things that we take for granted in building a supportive learning environment, we just need to be very clear and commented on directly so that the students understand that we're thinking about it consciously. It's really important to set that tone for the session because remote delivery just feels really formal compared to in-person delivery. Um, and so we all just need to work really hard to create a safe and open environment for the learners. And I feel like that's one of the better ways you can do that. Great. Let's, let's jump to assessments. How do you effectively assess students from home? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a, it is a big challenge and one that we are like concerned about going into the fall quarter, actually. We had already a, a clinical reasoning assessment that was an oral assessment in the spring for the students. And I felt that that was actually a very strong assessment. So to describe the assessment, the students watched a video of a simulated patient encounter. Um, they received some additional ancillary data around the physical exam. And then we gave them a set of questions ahead of time to respond to um, related to this encounter. So the students had a certain amount of time to work with these materials. And then they would meet with a faculty member one-on-one -on -one over Zoom to sort of present their responses to those questions. The faculty member could then ask clarifying questions and follow-up questions to really refine the students' thinking. And in general, I think that the faculty in the course was able to receive a, have a good sense of what the students' clinical reasoning thinking process was and their ability to synthesize information because we could sort of do a back and forth to really understand that nuance. You know, obviously the downsides are it does take a lot more time to initiate that sort of assessment. Uh, it's much more logistically complex than I think a regular just, just holding a, uh, a take-home exam over Canvas or over any other assessment modality, but I feel like at the end of the year and at the end of the quarter, we had a, I feel like we have a pretty accurate sense of how the students are, where they're standing is in clinical reasoning at least. I have one last question for you. So mm -hmm. right now we're in the middle of July and I don't think anyone knows what school will look like in the fall. I know we're hoping to potentially get some students back on campus, but you know, we, we really don't know. So based on your preparation, your experience, what will you do differently next quarter if we are to be remote again? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that going back to sort of working really hard and, and, and prioritizing the learning climate, um, I think we really are trying to work on increasing the number of informally kind of sessions that we're going to do in the in the fall so not only for community building but also so that the students feel like we're accessible um, and then they can just ask questions and it doesn't have to be in this very like pre-scheduled zoom format of the class that's you know on the grid and i think that's something that we're working hard on we're at a disadvantage, at least for the first year, because those students don't know who we are. And so we have to do a lot of work to build trust with that cohort. When this happened in the spring, obviously those students already had been working with us for two quarters. So they already knew who to go to and how our communication skills were. But other than that, we didn't have to do that work in the spring, but we will have to be doing that work in the fall. So we're trying to be really thoughtful about it. Great. Thank you, Monica. It's been a pleasure having you on the show. Our listeners will definitely appreciate your advice and best practices. Uh, please stay safe, and I hope to see you back on campus soon. You too, Arfa. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Teachers in White Coats. If you're enjoying our show, please like, rate, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. My name is Irfan Majadam. See you next time.